When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Before the Fade, brought to you by Street Lamp Media. This podcast is a family-friendly listen to some of our favorite songs and a deep dive behind the scenes to learn about the people who made the music and just what makes a classic so special. My name is Angel. I'm the son of a musician, and I played the saxophone growing up in and around Southern California. I've turned into a writer, director, and filmmaker, and I have an obsession with all things music, specifically what happens during and after fades. This podcast explores what happens during the song, before it fades out and we can't hear any more of that goodness. Stay tuned for the documentary, After the Fade, where we explore what happens during and after all the popular songs that fade on some really cool musical stuff. We sit down with producers, engineers, and the artists themselves to listen to and get the stories behind what happened after they decided for the radio edits fade to zero. For today's episode, we have traveled all the way to my home studio, so (laughs) not far at all. Our guest is the incomparable Basie Bob Brockman. Bob has been nominated for 30 Grammy Awards and one Academy Award. He's worked with artists ranging from Faith Hill and the Dixie Chicks to Puff Daddy, the Fugees, and Brian McKnight. On today's chat, we cover a lot of topics, specifically the future of music and how the NFT platform, Nifty Tunes, which Bob is responsible for, is aiming to equalize artist pay for their creations. Something that, in his opinion, and maybe in a lot of people's opinions, has been lacking in the current music model. We also talk about his time recording with Wyclef in his mother's basement. He shares some stories about Mary J. Blige and a few other artists that were really cool for me to hear. So keep listening because we've jumped right in to talk to Bob as he's just gotten home to New Orleans from New York on a business trip. So the company that I'm focusing 90% of my daily time on is nifty tunes um which is the um <clears throat> the nft platform that i started nine months ago very cool yeah and the uh, the essence of nifty tunes is that it's um it's a company that's able to capture live audio visual moments in a concert and um allow people who are in the audience fans of the band to bid on those moments right as they're seeing them oh that's amazing so it's it's real time live minting of performances, but it's it's fractionalized. You know, it's it's not the same as a as a you know an hour and twenty minute DVD. You know that would come out on say Sony or Warner Brothers. It's an economic model that's very favorable towards artists. Now, did you come to uh, learn about NFTs, if the Ethereum platform and blockchain, crypto in general, because of 
the opportunities it affords artists, or were you interested in this technology and this movement outside of how it could help artists? I, I came into it purely by observation. I mean, I've been a crypto investor for about five years, but um, you know, I think that a Harry Styles concert is a very different experience than an initial coin offering. Um, I don't think that there's anything like inherently exciting, um, you know, other than money. Um, yeah, about, about cryptocurrency and stable coins and all of that sort of stuff. You know, I, I think that, you know, the innovation of blockchain was that, you know, for the first time in the history of humanity, you know, you had the possibility of a decentralized monetary system. Well, let's, um, we've talked a little bit about what the future of music and is going to look like and what you're doing with Nifty Tunes and the NFT platform and Ethereum, the various other like blockchains out there, which facilitate this type of stuff. But let's go back before the fall. <laughs> Let's go back to the 90s um, and just a little bit about like your background. I know you played the trumpet and the flugelhorn in a very cool New York based band called Brooklyn Funk Essentials. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. That, that band started in 1993. Okay. Um, you grew up, I'm assuming, in the New York area. Playing... No, I grew, up, I grew up in New Orleans. Oh, that's right. New Orleans. Okay, great. What brought you up to New York then? I, I got a scholarship to University of Miami um, as a as a trumpet player, but prior to going to University of Miami, I was at the University of Virginia, which is oh, where okay. I started. And um, I, you know, I was an engineering student, and I was also obsessed with music at the same time. And it was kind of a pivotal moment in my life that this this uh, psychedelic New York jazz group called Cosmology decided to get a farmhouse outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. And I met them at this, uh, at this jazz club. This the only jazz club in, in Charlottesville called the mousetrap. And I ended up going up and sitting in with them and they invited me to come out to their farmhouse and jam with them, which I did. And at that point, it was the beginning of the summer and they had booked a couple dates with the cool jazz festival. One of them okay. was the Cool Jazz Festival in, in Rye, New York. And so so I traveled with them up to New York and I actually stayed in their loft, which which they were subletting to other musician friends of theirs in Chelsea. And I just fell in love with New York. I mean, this is when I was 18. Yep, that, that makes sense. And then I also dropped out of school. Whoa, okay. Which horrified my parents. Um, <laughs> my mom and dad had a, a bar in the French Quarter and my dad was piano player in the bar and my mom was the bar manager and so okay. you know i i grew up around music from you know my very very early childhood and i got the music bug very very early and i was obsessed with music so um my mom was furious that i had dropped out of school and called my dad and my dad drove up from new orleans to charlottesville for the day to meet me for lunch and he sat me down and he said son your mom's very angry that you dropped out of school. You cannot leave college. If you want to go study something else, you can study something else, but you can't drop out of school. Okay. So uh, I started making applications to music schools and I applied to quite a few of them and University of Miami gave me a full scholarship. That's amazing. I kind of, um, I kind of hustled my way into it because the cosmology guys played on my demo tape and these were all like seasoned New York musicians so, okay <laughs> so i mean the playing on my demo tape not necessarily my playing but their playing was fantastic and i think 
they they were impressed by the demo tape and so um so i left charlottesville i left all my friends and i moved down to miami and i started going back to new york on field trips to the audio engineering society convention which usually happened in new york city okay and i just fell in love with new york i mean i'm i'm still in love with new york even though i've been in new orleans for three years um you know, I, I had my whole career there for 40 years. Yeah. And, you know, and I had a lot of different kinds of experiences in, in New York. I mean, you know, most of it involved, you know, recording and producing records, but I was also a studio owner for 10 years. And, um, you know, towards the, the end of my time in New York, before I moved up here, I had started a venue in Brooklyn, um, which was a very successful venue in Crown Heights. Um, unfortunately, the venue went under during the pandemic and by that time i was no longer you know part of the venue but um you know i've always sort of been on the entrepreneur entrepreneurial side of things i mean mostly because you know like depending on royalties as a record producer you know doing recordings for major labels is is a dubious enterprise it sounds like a lot of dealings with record labels. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, just I mean, just generally speaking, you know, like typically, if you you know, if you mix or produce a record for you know a recording company, you know, you're you're probably spending between five and ten grand to negotiate a contract for one or two points okay. on like post recoupment of those records. And you know, my experience, you know of working on projects where, you know, I made almost nothing to mix them like the Fuji's, you know, the score. Um, mm-hmm. Wyclef had a very small budget from Joe the Butcher and he actually spent most of that money buying recording gear so that he could record the record by himself. Okay. And because that, re- you know, because of that reason, he didn't have a lot of money to spend on his mixers that worked on the record, but there was a deal, there was a royalty deal with Sony and I mean, you know, the score is I, huge. I can tell you there was never a dime and the Fuji sold 27 million units in like the first year and a half. So, I mean, you know, multiply that times $16 per CD, you know, you're talking about a billion dollars. I mean, Wyclef got a $10,000 advance on that record. Wow. <laughs> That's, those are insane numbers. Um, did you mix the entire um, record? You did the whole score? No, I mixed I mixed four songs on that record. Okay, which four songs on the score did you I mix? mean, I did, um, I did Ready or Not. I did the Bob Marley cover. I did Killing Me Softly. I did The Mask. So you, so you did like the four best ones. <laughs> the, four, the four best ones are yours? <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great record. It's an amazing record. Those are those are my four favorite from that record, though, like hands down. Yeah, I mean, it, it was um, it was a trip, you know, like I like I said, you know, I um, I lived in the East Village. I had a studio um, at a three room facility on Broadway and, you know, either Lauren or Proswell would come and pick me up at my apartment and we, we would drive to Newark, New Jersey and go to Wyclef's mother's house, which is where he had built the studio in the basement, the book of basement. Okay. And uh, the studio was filled with MCI gear that Wyclef had purchased from WGBH up in Boston. They had a fire sale that they were replacing all of their MCI equipment. And, you know, MCI is just well known as a company that 
produced a lot of consoles and tape machines down in Florida, and it was very popular in the Caribbean area. So you see, like, historically, a lot of studios in Jamaica and Haiti had MCI equipment. Okay. I can't confirm that, like, Wyclef bought all that MCI equipment because, like, so many great reggae records were made with MCI consoles and tape machines, but that is what he happened to buy. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. You know, he, he bought a pair of Yuri 813 speakers, which he basically, Jerry just basically took a jigsaw and cut holes into the paneling and just kind of slid them into the paneling with like two <laughs> by fours under them. And it was a very precarious situation, particularly given like how loud we were monitoring in the room that I'm lucky that I didn't walk under the speakers and die. <laughs> and the speakers falling on top of me in his mother's basement right yeah in, in his mother's basement yeah okay. I, mean, I mean you know that was like that in a in itself was an entrepreneurial story you know you know george lucas and 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 steven spielberg and francis ford coppola all went and bought film recording equipment because they didn't want to be um under the thumb of the studios they wanted to be able to make the movies that they wanted to make and they wanted to make them in their own way you know so i mean there there has always been the move towards artists maintaining more artistic control over what they wanted to do and that's why i would imagine that wyclef you know spent the majority of the very small stipend that he got to make that record to yeah. buy gear because then he was no longer um I mean, for one thing, he didn't go go and have to pay, you know, two thousand or twenty five hundred dollars a day to work in a studio in Manhattan. Yeah, he could spend as much time as he wanted to spend to get the record the way he wanted to get it. And there was definitely a movement towards like independent recording studios already happening in the early nineties. I mean, artists had kind of like figured out that if they own the gear, but at that time the gear was really expensive, and now the gear is not expensive at all. <clears throat> I mean, you know, yeah. independent artists can put a studio together for less than $1,000 and and make huge records like Billie Eilish, you know? I mean, yeah. I mean they they made that entire record, you know, on Logic Audio which cost $200 and a microphone. Think about it. It's, you know, the only limit that you have is 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 your creativity. I want to go back to um, some of your engineering um, stories. Uh, and my main question for you is, other than how have you been nominated for so many Grammys? <laughs> how have you been involved in so many giant projects? Uh, my main question is, when you're mixing something, when you're in the studio, when you're even producing something, at what point do you know or have the feeling that this is going to be a hit this is going to be big or this is special about a song like is there is there a moment where you know where you recognize where you look over at Wyclef or you look over at Christina or whoever you're working with and you're like I think this is going to go this is going to be big I think I think it has to do with emotion and goosebumps I mean, yeah. I, I remember uh many years when I was working with Puffy you know like I would have these moments in the studio where I just got lit up by a performance. And I think the thing is, is that it's a, this, this kind of way in which music sort of like touches the nervous system, you know, at the, at the emotional level, I think is, is a, um, 
I don't think it's, I, I mean, it is, it is a personal thing. And I think that certainly like some people are like more sensitive to like having their spider sense tingling, you know, when they hear like something that's going on with the song. But I also think it's universal because mm -hmm. my experience in, in most of the songs that I worked in in the studio where, you know, suddenly like after the singer comes in and they start singing or the rapper comes in and he like delivers his bars over it and everybody starts screaming in the room and you just get that moment you know you can feel that everybody in the room is feeling the same thing yeah and that's because really i think that that music is an energetic transformation of emotion i, I think you know to me that the the best songs that I've worked on are usually songs that are about true stories or about true experiences mm -hmm. that people have gone through in their lives. And they've transformed these experiences, either painful experiences or joyous experiences into music. I think it is the most natural thing in the world that human beings want to take their experiences and transform them into something that has meaning artistically. And so, it's almost kind of um, a virtuous circle, you know, an artist has an emotional experience. They write a song about it. You know, you, you do your best to actually like, you know, capture that lightning in a bottle in the studio in a sense. And, um, and, you know, make the best record, the most compelling record that you, that you possibly can, you know, with, with all of your love and, and, and all of your work. And then, you know, that song gets to a record company and then that song gets on the radio, then people hear it on the radio and then they have that experience and then they have goosebumps. And so it's, and it's exactly the same thing that happens in a live situation. I mean, you could just, you could feel it in the audience when you're, at, when you're at a big show and like somebody, you know, Lauren gets up there and she sings Killing Me Softly, like people go crazy. They start crying and they get goosebumps and they have all kinds of physical, visceral reactions to music. And I think that that's why music is so important in people's lives. I mean, it really, it occupies every aspect of your life from birth to death. You know, Stevie had a baby and he wrote, isn't she lovely? Yeah. One of the most beautiful songs. One of, my, one of the greatest songs ever, you know? Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that that was something that like I personally experienced in the room when something great was happening. I think it was something that was in the room and everybody felt it. Mm. It was a universal feeling. I'm not saying that like everybody got goosebumps or everybody reacted viscerally the way I reacted. But I mean, I definitely, I learned probably in the first 10 years of, you know, just working with really, really great producers and working with great artists that it, it's, music is not an intellectual process it's it's a visual and it's a spiritual process you really can't predict what's going to happen when you have four people like the beatles in a room you know all of whom are very different people with their own you know personal problems with their own like weird kind of personal affects and and personalities that don't always even get along with each other can get in a room and start jamming and make magic it's alchemical in a sense so other than some of your work with the Fugees, who are some other artists who you've had that experience with? You talked about Puff Daddy, being in the room with Puff Daddy, working on some of his songs. What are the, some of the songs or artists you've worked with where you felt that alchemical, mystical experience when you're working? I mean, all, all of them. 
Definitely. It's amazing. Definitely Mary J. Blige's record, My Life, which I worked on with Chucky Thompson. You know, that was a okay. record that I worked on almost daily for a year. Okay. And and during that time, you know, Mary's star was rising and also KC's star was rising. And, you know, I had also done Dire of a Mad Band with Jodeci. So I knew KC, but I also saw the effect of the more you know corrosive and destructive aspects of the relationship that that she was having as a young woman with a, a male artist who was a young man you know both of whom had egos both of who were trying to you know claim the spotlight mm. and you know there were definitely circumstances where you know she was not being treated fairly in, in that relationship. And, and in many circumstances, she was being kind of like, you know, shouted down on TV when they were doing interviews. And she was just struggling a lot. Um, yeah. She was, she was, you know, she was suffering a lot. She was crying a lot. She was drinking a lot to, to kind of just deal with what was going on emotionally. I mean, like the first thing when Mary got to the studio was her sister would bring in a six pack of Heineken, you know, that's, that's how she started her session, you know, Wow. To, to try to, to try to level out to some extent. And, um, you know, the, you know, the relationship between artists and drugs and alcohol is like well-documented. Yeah. There's no secrets there. Going back for a hundred years. Um, and you know, that's, that's partially because being an artist is hard, you know, put, putting, putting yourself on the line and exposing yourself like that publicly to people takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of guts to do that. It takes a lot of guts to, you know, to really do anything artistically and suffer the slings and arrows of, you know, people's um, cruelty that they can manifest towards you. And it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You know, you can have adoration from your fans and then you can come out with another record and then everybody's attacking you. Yeah. And social media has really, you know, has multiplied that by a million factor. Yeah. I mean, now you have just like flash mobs, like attacking artists for no particular reason, other than maybe there's just some innuendo or rumor that got, you know, circulated. Or they allow themselves to be attacked because the publicist or the person who's marketing the record think that thinks that that's a good move to have a lot of drama around the record. But the fact of the matter is, is that the person who's taking that on the nose is the artist. Yeah, and that that artist is a human being with feelings and thoughts and desires and sensitivities and yeah, and social media really makes it easy for you know for people to be really really with almost no accountability. I mean, yeah, I mean these are all like you know broader questions about like you know who you actually are, what your identity is, and you know should people be able to just anonymously be able to come onto a site and just attack people. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, probably it's not really healthy for society in general, but yeah, it's where we're at, but it's, yeah, it's not great. There's this song that Mary did called every day it rains. And, you know, I, I remember when she, you know, she, and she basically wrote that record in the studio Okay. while we were sitting in the room, you know, wow. for the most part, you know, she was, she was like coming up with ideas while people were, were bringing in beats, you know, while the house was sort of under construction, She's writing her lyrics and coming out with her melodies. And, you know, I, you know, I had those same kinds of experiences with Biggie. I definitely had those experiences with Christina. Um, I've had those experiences with a lot of people, 
you know, I, I would say the records, you know, that are some of the biggest records, some of the most like memorable records for people are that way because it was a memorable experience and because what happened in the studio is magical. And I don't necessarily like take any ownership or credit of that. You know, I um, just happy that I was in the room when it was happening. <laughs> yeah. What a cool, you know, I, I mean, I think that, you know, that the role of the producer and the role of the mixer is to sort of like act as like a, an advocate and an amplifier of somebody's talent, you know, sure. um, either the way that it's presented, the way that it's mixed, the way that it's enhanced, um, you know, the way that, there's something just particularly special about the production of the beat that, you know, makes just, it just makes people's body go into a convulsion when they hear the beat, you know, if it's a really, really good beat. Um, yeah. And then you've got a really, really good beat and an amazing singer or amazing rapper on top of it. Um, you know, you have like, you have the possibility for like a global smash. Was that um, your experience with uh, Christina Aguilera, who was one of my, I think we were texting about this. She's one of my favorite singers. I worked, I worked with Christina on a number of different projects. I mean, I worked on almost all of the Miri Flejo record, which was um, her Spanish language record, right? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a marketing thing. Like, you know, I think, I think five or six of the songs that were on Miri Flejo. I mean, Miri Flejo is Reflections, right? Reflections was the first song that she did before she got her deal with RCA oh, Records. Okay. Um, it was from Mulan. It was the original Mulan. Yeah, um, yeah, there's been a reboot of Mulan 25 years later. But, um, you know, Christina was uh, a Disney girl like Britney, like Justin Timberlake. She sort of come up through the studio system. Mm -hmm. And she was not really um, a trained singer. I mean, she didn't go to music school. She didn't study voice, um, but she's just an absolute savant. I mean, you know, I mean, as far as like, being able to sing jazz and being able to like navigate your way through changes with absolutely no musical training to me is it's unreal. It's an unreal ability. It's an unbelievable thing. And, and, and you know, she does it subconsciously. Yeah. She doesn't do it intellectually. She just hears a chord and she just finds her way through it. You know? Um, yeah. She's definitely one of the most gifted singers of this gen generation in, in my opinion. Um, and you know, she has that, she has that ability to just like harness power. You know, the same way that like Celine Dion does or, or Mariah does or, you sure, know, yeah. like or Aretha or Shaka, you know, I mean, I worked with both Aretha and Shaka in the studio and, you know, that's an amazing thing to witness. I mean, talk about goosebumps, you know, like just seeing Shaka like step to the microphone and whisper something and then just kind of, you know, take a drag off her cigarette, cigarette, and, like careen back three feet and just like unload, you know, you know, a lick is is an amazing thing. I mean, it just peels the hair off the back of your head, you know. Can you share what you worked on with Shaka? What I was working on with Shaka, I can't remember the name of the songs. David Gamson, who was the producer from Screedy Politi, was also, um, he was an in-house producer at Warner Brothers, along with, you know, Russ Teitelman and uh, a whole bunch of other producers were, were staff producers for Warner Brothers, which me meant that it was kind of like more of a studio system model that Lenny Warnocker had created. Okay. And he was working on Shaka's last record that she that she was doing for Warner Brothers. It was the last record for her. Okay. Okay. I did a little digging after our chat and found the song he's talking about. 
It's Shaka Khan singing, of course, and the track is called Love You All My Lifetime, produced by David Gamson. Off the album The Woman I Am, released in 1992 on Warner Brother Records. Louis Cato, who was the guitar player for Michelle Indigo Cello, like he was prominently on that record. He was he was David David's favorite guitar player at that time. And I believe Louis Cato just took over for Colbert because because John Batiste just left. Oh, okay. He just left the show. And um yeah, um Abe Laboreal Jr. was on there um playing drums. Michelle Indigo Cello was playing bass on some of those songs. Because David oh, had, cool. had already done a record with Michelle. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I was mostly I was mostly recording vocals for that record. I I didn't mix any of those songs. Um, I only recorded with David on that. Uh, on the, I guess it was the the third Screedy Politi record that okay. they did after like a ten year hiatus. Um, I think it was called Anime and Bonamy. Um, I did mix that record. Okay. Okay. Very cool. That record had all kinds of guest artists. Most Def. I think it was the first like guest spot that Most Def had done that wasn't one of his own records. Nice. It was a life changing experience to be able to sit behind the desk and and hear Chaka sing. You know. Um, you know. I mean. I, I'm. I'm just. You know. I. Le- I just always leave these sessions filled with such sort of surprise and gratitude, you know, that like, how did I end up in this place? <laughs> you know? Just to be a witness. As I, you know, I've been producing records for 40 years, you know, as I, as I get further and further along in my career, I do a lot less and say a lot less than I used to. <laughs> when I first started out, I always felt like, oh, just couldn't you try it this way, you know? And, you know, I just don't, you know, I was just, you know, I was just in the in in the studio, you know, producing this like new band, like quarters of changes. Um, Twenty-one-year-old kids all grew up together in New York City. They've been playing together since they were five years old. And you know, it's like you you kind of want to you want to guide everybody towards giving their best performance. But like, what's the psychology behind that? Sure. And yeah. you know, I I think that I've seen a lot of producers that are obsessed with their own ego and their own importance and wanting to give direction. And as I've gotten older and older, the producers that I've observed that give the least direction seem to get the biggest results from the yeah. artists. Yeah, you know, I was thinking like when you you'd asked the question about Killing Me Softly, um, you know, I think that Killing Me Softly was one of these kind of like fatalistic moments for these guys. Because, yeah. you know, when I started working on the score, um, the Fugees were in danger of being dropped because I think Blunted on Reality did like 180,000 units, Whoa. which like, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't sell out on your first record in that era, in the nineties, when, you know, there were so many big artists like selling millions of records, you were just considered a liability and quite often you were dropped from your deal. Wow. But I think because Joe, the butcher who was there, you know, their independent label guy, Rough House was their independent label that they were signed to, which was part of Sony. Um, 
you know, I think that that's probably why Joe like gave Wyclef so little money to make the record. It was kind of like, well, you know, see what you can do with this. Sure. And, um, and, you know, Killing Me Softly was not on the slate for the record that Wyclef wanted to make, but, you know, their, their manager, David Sonnenberg was a very big manager and, and definitely understood the mechanics of the business. And I think what he really understood was that a properly placed cover on a record can make a really, really big difference in the record's outcome. And I mean, I'm not saying that like, if they hadn't put Killing Me Softly on the record, you know, that like it wouldn't have sold millions of records. I mean, maybe that was going to be the moment for the Fugees no matter what. But I know that Lauren wanted to do the song and I know that like Lauren was not really getting along with, with Wyclef at that point. Um, they had a very tumultuous affair. Wyclef was a married guy. Uh, there was a lot of drama. There's always a lot of drama. Yeah. <laughs> in the studio making records. But there was a particular amount of drama between uh, Lauren and Wycliffe and you know the band broke up for a reason and it took a mm. long long time for them to even get back on stage I believe it was this year yeah yeah <laughs> it was the first time they'd seen each other um, but Wycliffe didn't want to do it and you know David Sonnenberg called Wycliffe and said look just just take a little time just like just like make a beat you know you don't have to work on the song you know like Jerry and Lauren will do it and that's basically what happened you know, he went and he sat down at the SB12 and probably spent an hour putting a beat together and they did the rest because it's wow. just, it's a baseline in vocals. That's all it is. Yeah. It's super sparse. But I mean, there's no question that like, you know, Killing Me Softly, you know, was already an incredible song with Roberta Flatt. It's a massive hit. Yeah. And that cover and the way that they flipped it but they brought this like, you know, like classic from the seventies that like everybody's mom and dad loved into the hip hop world. It was just a moment. And, you know, it's like, I experienced like three records in one year. One was killing me softly. The other was juicy with Biggie. And then the other one was flavor in your ear with, uh, with Craig Mack. Unreal. I mean, at one point, you know, Juicy and Flavor in Your Ear were competing for the number one and number two slot on the pop charts for like six months. I mean, it was like an incredible amount of time that those songs just persisted on the radio and also persisted in people's cars all around Brooklyn. I mean, it was just crazy. Yeah. What was that like walking around knowing you were intimately involved? In it still happens. You know, like I, I can't I heard Killing Me Softly in the car in an uber in london like two and a half weeks ago when i was there and it, it was just crazy because i had been talking to somebody um this guy benjamin who had actually brought me to the uk to meet with the uk government to talk about you know the deplorable situation with artists and like what can the government do to support and and he was talking about killing me softly like while I was at his house with his kids and I left his house and I got in an Uber to go back to downtown London and Killing Me Softly came on the radio. Killing Me Softly was released in February of 1996 off the debut album for the American hip hop group Fuji's. The song topped the charts in over 20 countries and was the best selling single in 1996 in the UK, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany and Iceland. 
The song is certified triple platinum in both the States and the United Kingdom. The Fugees won the Grammy for Best R&B Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals for the song in 1997. And in 2020, Rolling Stone added Killing Me Softly to their list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Its spot on that list? Number 359. Just ahead of Prince with Little Red Corvette at number 360, and behind Patti Smith with Because the Night at 357. Blank Space by Taylor Swift sits just two spots ahead at number 357. I have a story about that song in London too. So as a 17-year-old as a kid, um, my senior trip from high school, I went with my girlfriend's art history class to Europe. First stop was London. All the chaperones were like, well, some of you are 18. Parents asked that you can't, you don't go out and drink. You're legal, you know, you're old enough to drink here, but they've asked us not to let you do that. First night we land in London, they go, we're gonna let you go out anyway. Just don't go to a pub, don't go drinking. First place we go is to a karaoke bar and everyone's getting drunk. And that song is playing. And there is like a Malaysian businessman who is like rocking the Wyclef one time, two time. And all the kids from Long Beach are like up there singing with them. We go outside to get some air and the chaperones walk around the corner and they bust us. Because <laughs> we're not supposed to be drinking. We're outside of a pub. <laughs> but that song in that pub in London as a 17 year old, you know, my first like bar I've ever been in, like breaking the rules with, all, with my girlfriend and all our friends, like was the time of our life. You know, the Malaysian businessman singing the Wyclef part. It's like, it's, it's etched into like the fabric of my like adolescence. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's the other thing about music is that I believe that music is the only thing that, um, that triggers every part of the brain. There are all yeah. kinds of other inputs. I mean, there's 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 verbal, there's, you know, all kinds of like other impulses that are very localized, you know, color mm -hmm. and the visual cortex are in certain parts of the brain. Music, when you put an fMRI machine on a brain, the entire brain lights up. Wow. And, and you know, there have even been, you know, studies, the guy that wrote that uh, did the movie Alive Inside, which um, my friend did the score for. So I went to the premiere for the movie, this guy that was taking like uh, miniature iPods into assisted living facilities. In some cases, people who had full blown dementia or basically mm -hmm. just kind of like leaned over drooling into a cup for a decade, two decades, mm -hmm. just sitting there doing nothing. They hear music and they wake up and they get up and they start telling stories and their, and their memories emerge because the music touches the part of the brain that's connected to the attachment to that mm -hmm. memory and in that case he was he was making playlists of songs from the childhood of these people with dementia oh wow and i was it was it was so successful in waking these people up effect, effectively that he started going into assisting living facilities and he started a nonprofit to buy ipods to make playlists for people's favorite music Wow, that's amazing. And they get up and they start dancing and they start telling stories and suddenly like all their memories just come streaming to the surface. Like music is more powerful than than we can imagine and it's certainly more valuable than the way in which it's being compensated. 100%. In yeah. the business world, I mean it's it, it's the streaming companies are insulting the legacy yeah. of music by the way in which they're treating artists. So I almost wonder if another piece of technology has maybe 
set the whole thing in motion now because up into a up until a certain point music was only played live i don't know when the advent of recording happened but started out with alexander graham bell with the wire recorder in 1890 so, so in 18 so prior prior to that you could only hear music by someone performing it live for you right so the artist would be compensated i'd imagine by virtue of like, well, you can't take this thing I performed once, recreate it and play it infinitely. I mean, I, I mean, I think that there was a sheet music publishing business of songs being written. And I mean, I think that there were, you know, uh, player pianos and that sort of thing in mm -hmm. the 1800s. Um, okay. There was not recorded music. Um, but but I mean, there were, you know, there were music publishing companies for Beethoven and Chopin and mm -hmm. Rachmaninoff. And, you know, I mean, I, I mean, music had to be printed in order for the orchestras to play the music. So there, you know, yeah. there was music publishing. What recorded music brought in was the mechanical and the mechanical was actually the mechanical process of music reproduction. Yeah. So and it's been a long trajectory from like 1890 to 2022. Um, you know, but many, many permutations of how music is is captured. But I think that like, I don't think that people are going to suddenly dispense with the live performance of music simply because there are, you know, streaming services that have every song in the world. I think, you know, as evidenced by people like selling out, you know, concerts, new artists selling out concerts, people are dying to get in the room and be close to the artists when they sing their songs. I don't think that that's going anywhere ever. I don't, and I, I'd argue that that's the more valuable experience, even though we can re play repeatedly our favorite songs via streaming and, you know, MP3s and whatnot, the more valuable is the live visceral experience where the sound waves are hitting your yeah that's what we're yeah. disrupting we're you know we're you know you were talking about like goosebumps and like how do you know a song is a hit you know i think the way that you know a song is a hit is not because you're thinking about it being a hit it's because it's something that's happening in your body and your soul yeah you know it's it's a very music is music is an existing part of what our earthbound experience is because vibration exists everywhere right and also energy exists everywhere and you know there's more and more um conflation of sort of like physics theory of non-locality and all of these you know kind of like new modes of thinking about like what matter actually is more and more they're coming down to like matter at its at its very core is vibration so we're vibrational beings you know at our absolutely you know at 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 least the lowest core that we can measure, which is photons and electrons, it's it's been proven to be vibrational. And music is and music is vibrational. All vibrational, yeah. Right. And so, you know, when you when you get people in a room together where you whether you get four musicians in a room together jamming or whether you get forty thousand people in a festival jamming, you know, the energy is moving around the room. Yeah. And it's an incredible thing to see. I mean, and I, you know, I was fortunate enough, you know, I kind of, um, you know, I gave up my high paying job with Puff Daddy, you know, <laughs> mixing records to, to go and play trumpet with a funk band and make $40 a night playing the Montreux Jazz Festival because I just wanted to be on stage. I wanted to have that experience. And, you know, that, 
those years that I toured with Brooklyn Funk Essentials really informed what I wanted to do with this company, why I wanted to focus on live music and why I wanted to focus on live capture, because I, I realized that it's very, very difficult to retool the existing business as it is. Yeah, because it's, complete, it's completely co-opted and monopolized at this point. And you're, 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 you know, you're not going to pull, you're not going to pull the, the dog away from that bone. You know, no. they, they have a lot of power and they have a lot of money and they have a lot of control. But artists are innovative by nature. Mm -hmm. They're constantly innovating and looking for like new ways to do things. And, and technology has actually been to, to that extent, like a really, really great benefit for musicians and composers. You know, they're not limited by having to go and borrow $100,000 from a record company in order to be able to like make a really great record. Yeah. I mean, Billie Eilish made her first record with no budget in their there's, mom's house. There's been quite a few new artists in the past 10 years who have been like bedroom, you know, made bedroom like overnight sensations like just yeah, recording, I mean, it's, you know, it's, they it's their a great mic story, but it's also a distortion that the media likes to tell about the music business. That I, I think the yeah. part of the music business that they don't show is, you know, bands, you know, sitting in the studio at a Pro Tools rig, you know, like going through hundreds of takes to try to, you know, find the ultimate version of the song. Yeah, but there's an enormous amount of production and editing and fixing and tuning and timing and you know all of these kinds of editorial things that go into podcasts and everything else, you know, it's production. And, you know, Hollywood does a great job of like, you know, showing behind the scenes with huge boom rigs and like, you know, you know, crew of a hundred people, like, you know, walking these cameras around and lighting people. And the music business does the bedroom producer, which makes like most people who buy music think, well, why should I spend any money? I mean, she's just in her bedroom with her computer, like making the music and having fun. You know, it it's a it's kind of an insult to the value proposition of actually how hard it is to make a hit record. Yeah, and even if it was easy to make a hit record in your your bedroom, the value that you gain from listening and consuming that is worth paying for. Like it's absolutely worth paying for. The joy and like being like the the change to your being that music causes is worth paying for arts are worth paying for they're they're an essential part of our existence yeah yeah it's it's um as i said you know it 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 accompanies you from cradle to death you know every yeah. every major experience is usually accompanied by some kind of music whether it's ethnic music or whether it's your favorite hit song yeah you know human beings can't live without music what were some of your early uh, musical influences? And I, I know you said your dad played the piano, but... My dad was a jazz piano player in New Orleans. So, you know, I mean, I was exposed to a lot of standards and, and a lot of jazz. And I sort of grew up as a jazz trumpet player. So, you know, okay. I was listening to Miles and Lee Morgan and Clifford Brown and Freddie Hubbard and, you know, um, Chet Baker. You know, I mean, scores of musicians. Most of the records that I had in my record collection were trumpet players. Yeah. All, so you were always into trumpet. As I started joining bands when I was in my teens, like 15, 16 years old, I was starting to get turned on to, you know, Weather Report, Jaco Pastorius and mm -hmm. Pat Metheny and, you know, Sly Stone and James Brown and the Ohio Players and, you know, 
funk, generally speaking. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I, you know, I mean, I mean, once I, once I started to hear funk and soul music, I think, in a way, it captivated me even more than jazz did. And and I mean, and I still have a relationship. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been working with jazz musicians my whole life. I mean, the Christina record I did was with probably one of the greatest jazz artists of all time, Herbie Hancock. Oh, 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 Herbie! It's just <laughs> yeah. The the the, yeah. the the song for you recording was for a Starbucks record. No way! It was for a Starbucks record. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, Possibilities was done for Hear Music. Okay, okay. So part of the um, part of the thing about that Christina song was that the way the deals worked for Starbucks is I think they put out fifty two records a year, so they had one record each week, and wow. the record would sit right next to where you got your coffee i remember those yeah so that if you bought the record and you bought the coffee it was twenty dollars okay it was exactly twenty dollars so it's like oh do you want to add that herbie hancock record to your frappuccino you know uh-huh and so it had to be delivered and you had to deliver like whatever like eight hundred thousand units because there were three thousand starbucks stores and so um the timing was very very tight and we were working on on like with so many collaborative artists. I mean, it was Angelique Kijo, there was Annie Lennox, there was Paul Simon, there was Sting, um, there was Stevie, there was Christina. Wow. Um, the two things that the two artists that Herbie was struggling with, one was Stevie that he just couldn't get a time in the studio. Like it was just time was ticking and he was not getting, um, he was not getting the recording done and Herbie had done like a really beautiful reharmonization of I just called to say I love you instead mm -hmm. of a major key and a minor key. It was beautiful. Okay. And he never got it with Stevie. And he ultimately oh. brought Raul Madan, who's now been his his go-to guitar player in his band for many, many years. And Raul, Raul Madan, in addition to being an incredible guitar player, is an amazing singer. So on that particular song, he ended up using Raul. In Christina's case, um, he kept booking time at Studio B in the record plant in LA, which is where Christina did almost all of her stuff. That was like her favorite spot, the record okay. plant. And she kept blowing off the sessions with no warning and no communication. And like I said, you know, time is ticking. The record needs to be delivered. And the re record is not delivered. It's going to get pushed back another year or not happen at all. Okay. Like if he didn't deliver the record to Starbucks, he wouldn't have had the success with the record that he had because the record sold out instantly right within yeah like an nft right yeah yeah boom 800 900 records whatever all sold instantly wow so and herbie was financing the project so he was under a lot of pressure and uh he couldn't figure out i think at that time why um why christina wasn't showing up at the studio and you know i I would imagine he was thinking she was just too big a star, you know, okay. at that point to, you know, to, to bother dealing with a record with a jazz musician. Um, but, you know, Herbie has defied those kinds of constraints many times. And so many times yeah. later on with the Joni record, which was the first record jazz record to win record of the year since Getz Goberto in 1961. Yeah. Yep. So, 
And this was also my introducing, it was my introduction to my Buddhist practice, you know, which I've had ever since I got introduced by Herbie. While I was making that record, I got introduced to Nishiran Buddhism and he was explaining to me his process of, you know, chanting for a favorable outcome in a situation. And in this case, he was chanting a lot <laughs> with Christina. And as it turned out, you know, um, he was able to get to her people and he invited her over to his house on Doheny Drive, um, which is not too far from the Tower Records in, in L.A. No, no, it's right down the street. Yeah. And they got to sit down and hang out and talk to each other. And she just sort of basically opened up to him that like this song was the favorite song of hers that she's listened to her entire life and that she was completely freaked out and she just didn't think that she was up to it, that she could sing it. Wow. That was the true story. Wow. And so he said, well, why don't, you know, after they had sat down and after they had communicated and dialogued with each other, he sat down at the piano and she started singing and it just, it came out. She let go. You what know, a, and, what and, an honesty you know, to share. Like ego, ego is a weird thing. You know, like ego can delude you into believing that, you know, you're the greatest of all time. You're the greatest political leader of all time, you know, because you have an out of control ego. And in artist cases, ego can be self-destructive. I'm not up to it. I, I'll never be able to sing this song like Donny Hathaway. You know, I'll yeah. never be able to actually do justice to this song that's so important to me. Yeah. And and part of what being an artist is, is to be fearless, is to leap into the void. And mm. I think that that's what Herbie was offering Christina, was an opportunity to, to give her a safe environment where she could leap in, into the void, which in this case was his living room, mm -hmm. you know, where he had his Fagioli piano and also microphones going down to the studio in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> he had a basement studio, too, uh, where he was working on his records. That he didn't like trick her into recording it though, right? He didn't like he didn't have you in the basement pressing record and no, it was a very it was a very conscious thing. But I think, and you know, and I wasn't privy to that conversation. I mean, I you know, I he was in Los Angeles and I was in New York, and it was record the actual song was recorded at a later session. Yeah, I think the song I think the song was actually recorded at the record plant. Okay, and then you mixed that, right? And then I mixed it, yeah. Okay. There's this like break thing that happens at like 3.30 or four minutes in the song where she just like hits this note and it was like, it's another one of those like Shaka Khan moments, you know, or like yeah. a Whitney moment when she goes like, and I, you know, and like the yeah. Diane Warren song, you know, that like, I mean, these are the moments that like change people's fucking lives, you know? As a reminder, the song we're talking about is entitled A Song For You, originally written by Donny Hathaway. This arrangement was done by the incomparable Herbie Hancock as a single on his 45th album entitled Possibilities, released in 2005. The singer, of course, is Christina Aguilera, and the moment Bob just spoke of is coming right up. that and you're just like 
holy it's just it's just it's beyond our mortal coil it's beyond our mortal experience it's like transcending into you know a whole other mystical dimension of our existence that we get exposed to yeah because of because of music i mean music is magical i think christina for me has more moments than any other modern singer because of the sheer quality timber and tenor of her voice there's something about certain notes something she about her vocal cords yeah it yeah it's it's like like she's like physiologically like perfect in certain ways that just the resonance of her voice when it comes out you're like that is an undeniable experience right there across all cultures genre like religions that is a that is a gift from somewhere else that's not explainable yeah so. and i mean you know she's got other songs like i'm beautiful you know which i mean you know it's like it's is kind of like it 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 goes beyond just being a successful song it 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 goes into the realm of like how women perceive their own image of like who they are you know yeah as, as a as a as a being and you know i think that that's what's wonderful about about musicians is that they're storytellers and you know they can change the trajectory of a whole generation of people through mm -hmm. their songs and it's happened a couple of times it's happening again you know oh, yeah. Bob Marley was as important to, you know, the the rise of the countercultural movement as Martin Luther King, I would say, mm -hmm. in, in his own way. Um, Bob Marley was a truth teller, you know, and he was he, he was speaking about, you know, an, an, an entire group of people who have been marginalized their entire lives, abject poverty. And he, and he does it in such a beautiful way, in such a joyous way, you know. Um, really yeah like not a celebratory all, a lot of his songs are about poverty a lot of his songs are just about love and about the beauty of a woman and you know um the the joy of life's experience i think for me reflecting on what music has given me in this life and what it means to me is it it's a shortcut to gratitude and presence you know there's there's religious practices there's meditation there's yoga there's all these things that we do and we try to be mindful right and it's just you listen to your favorite song you listen to a great song and it immediately for me brings me present and makes me experience gratitude in a way that is sometimes hard to access in other ways and it's it's been such a gift for me so i grew up you know playing music my father was a musician um at some point at one point i decided there's probably not a lot of money in playing the saxophone <laughs> and i need to find a way to make it so i decided to become an actor and a filmmaker which is probably equally as hard equally as competitive that might be harder <laughs> i think it might be harder too. i mean you know like actors can't go and like do wedding gigs um Very I, true. I they, can, they can cater the wedding gigs <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I mean, I had a lot of like actor friends in New York, you know, and they, I think that they always bemoaned the fact that they couldn't just go to a club and jam whenever they wanted to, you know, and, yeah. and musicians can do that, you know. Yep. Um, and obviously, like a lot of musicians, they, you know, they play music for no money, you know. Yeah, just to play. Just playing with their friends, you know, I mean, just like playing music is a joyous thing. Do you play regularly still? I mean, I'm always around music in some capacity. I would say that, like, 
as as far as like working as a, a mixer and producer, which was pretty much my full time job until about nine months ago, um, I am still doing it, but I'm kind of fitting it into the cracks now. I, I really yeah. um, I I feel a very, very strong personal and moral mandate in what I'm doing with this company. Yeah, that's coming across, definitely. Which is, which is kind of, you know, like trying to solve a problem that government intervention is not going to address. It's just obvious. If, if, yeah. if the legislation to, to you know, have more fair pay for musicians or any other worker, for that matter, were to come, it would have come. Um, yeah, the time's so, you know, I, so I, you know, I, I guess I just turned 60 this year, just a couple months ago. And... You know, I feel like I'm just moving into a different phase of my life where, you know, it's it's not just about my own personal career and my own personal success. I mean, you know, you were talking at the beginning about, you know, all these Grammy Awards and multi-platinum records and stuff. And I mean, you know, it is definitely something to celebrate, you know, and I'm not in any way like eschewing it or 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 downplaying it. But I mean, it's it's very much a product of like this sort of like union of kind of like you know creativity and innovation on the production side and then just commerce on the label side sure yeah you know i mean i mean records records do not become successful in a vacuum obviously because you could look on spotify the people who don't have marketing and don't have a big company behind them they're not selling millions of streams people are not even seeing their music you know unless unless you know the uh the game is fixed to some extent you know yeah live davis i mean famously used to just like you know he used to send people out to basically like buy all the product the first week which is the same thing that brian epstein did with the beatles he sent like schoolgirls with like 20 pounds to the record stores to buy out all the beatles records no way so that's to the top of the charts wait so clive davis did this as well yeah Oh, he That's did amazing. it for a long. He did it for a long time because you know, oh, amazing. A lot of the Billboard chart positions had to do with um, the uh, sound scan numbers, right? Okay. Every yeah. single time, like a CD was purchased, you know, it it ticked off a sound scan number, and so to some extent, even though um, radio was not empirical at the time in the '90s, retail was empirical because everything mm -hmm. had become sound scan, and so they could actually measure. The number of units that were sold on a daily basis and if you had the highest number of units then you were number one on the charts and then if you were number one on the charts then you had bragging rights that the record's number one obviously it's a hit record would you say that now that you're working on this you said you're putting 90 percent of your energy into the nifty tunes would you say that this is your life's mission now and everything you've done thus far has been leading you to this. Do you feel a different sense of purpose? Do you feel a different energy in your life? Like how do you, how do you like summarize what's going on? There were many circumstances um, where I was in the studio with artists who were winning Grammy awards and selling millions of records who were broke. And when you're in the studio, you know that because they're mm -hmm. borrowing money to basically get a cab to get home. And, you know, they're they're wearing Versace and Halston and, you know, half million dollar earrings on their ears at the Grammy Awards, which are then taken back and like sent back to whoever they borrowed it from. You know, a lot of the image of the success and, you know, I mean, you can see that in a really, really extreme way in hip hop. 
yep. with, yeah. with the bling effect. And I mean, and you know, and I, I follow Talib, you know, I worked with Talib Kweli and, um, you know, he talks about that a lot, you know, like, you know, why, you know, why are rappers paying $400 for a pair of sneakers? You know, why, why are they spending $20,000 on some gold to go around their neck? As opposed to say, you know, investing in a business and building a building a business up. Like, where does that come from? And yeah. I, you know, I, and and a lot of people have answered that question in different ways. But I mean, I think that it's, um, you know, if you don't if you don't have control in society, and you're not in the owning place in society, at least you can dress that way, and at least you can behave that way. Yeah, to give the perception that you are from from the perspective of perception. So I think that like a lot of what I experienced in the music business was like perception that like everybody in the music business was rolling because it certainly looks like they are when you look at pictures and you look at the way that they're dressed on the award show. It seems like they must be extraordinarily wealthy. And I mean, there are some musicians that did become extraordinarily wealthy, including Prince, mm -hmm. you know, um, but you know, he was not in control of his career. He was not in control of his output. He was not in control of when his songs came out or when his songs didn't come out. You know, the corporations had last say. And they also mm -hmm. owned all of his product. And so that's why he wrote slave on the side of his face every night when he went out on stage, because he he realized that he was a slave to a corporate institution that was oppressing his ability to be able to like fully flex what he wanted to do as an artist and as he got out of the major label system with warner brothers he was able to do more and more things yeah and still put out great music yeah yeah absolutely absolutely he was less restricted i mean i have no idea how many records there are in the vault but it's a lot yeah i i have a feeling we're gonna find out at the peak of his career as he was writing you know like 10 12 13 albums a year and warner brothers would never release more than one record a year that's unreal. It's unreal. So like, if you think about it, like most of his music was warehoused. Do you think some artists are touched? Like that's a gift to put out that much, to have that much versatility as a musician and had to have that sort of drive and output volume. 10, 13 albums a year. We don't know how much is in the vault for Prince. Have you seen some artists who you're like, that person is just touched and built differently. And then there's like the rest of us, <laughs> the rest of us who work hard and, and turn out great music. I think that, the, I think that that exists everywhere. I mean, I, I think that there are business people that are touched. Yeah. You know, Elon Musk is touched, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, how many companies has he got? He's got a, a Neuralink company, he has a satellite company, he has a rocket company, he has a car company, he has a boring company. I mean, this is a guy that reads 10 books a week, you know, yeah. and is, is probably on the autistic spectrum. I mean, he's admitted that he's on the autistic spectrum when he was on Saturday Night Live with his mom. And I'm not saying that, like, all autistic people are geniuses, because that's also not the case. Nope. Yeah. Um, people, you know... I think that people are possessed of, you know, a certain kind of talent and a certain kind of intellect and a certain kind of drive. And a lot of that just has to do with A, the way they were born or B, the, the kind of environment that they were in growing up. I mean, from what I understand, having worked with Prince and like a lot of the people that were close to him, like Monty Moyer, who was in the time, 
you know, Prince was a really lonely kid. He spent most of his time by himself. Yeah, I've heard that. And um, from what I could gather, um, learned every piece of music in the world. Because all of the guys that surrounded him, Jimmy and Terry and all the guys in his circle, used to play this game called Stump the Kid. Everybody called him the kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they would come up with all kinds of obscure classical songs. And, like, Prince would always f*** with them. He'd go like, and then he would sit down and play it. Like, pretend that he didn't know the song. And then, like, there was never a time, from what Monty said, that he didn't know the song. It didn't matter whether it was a classical song, a soul song, a country song. He just learned everything. And that's why he was such a prolific composer, because he had so much to draw on. I mean, he knew the whole Jimi Hendrix catalog. He knew the whole, you know, and... And, you know, you would see this in the jam sessions that he would do. You know, he'd play a three-hour show at the Garden, and then he would go and have a jam session until 6 o'clock in the morning. And it was all covers. And it didn't yeah. matter what it was, and it didn't matter what the song was or who he was jamming with or, like, who was playing. He knew every song. Yeah. And he didn't just know that he could sing it. He knew that he could sit down and play it. Every part on every instrument. Encyclopedic understanding of the entire history of Western music. That's what made Prince. So there's another, Prince is one of my favorite artists, as he is for a lot of people, but there's another um, artist out there who has a similar ability. And for me, discovering Oscar Peterson, I was like, oh, okay. I, I discovered Phineas Newborn Jr. first. And my dad was like, oh, you like you like him, huh? You know, there's a guy Phineas was always trying to chase. And I was like, there's no way. Phineas is so amazing. And then a few years later, I heard Blues for Martha on the radio, and it, it literally stopped me in my tracks, blew my mind. And I, and, I, and I didn't know, they didn't say this is Oscar Peterson. I heard the song, and I knew my dad, that this was the guy my dad was talking about. Like, this has to be the guy. And they said, oh, this is Oscar Peterson. And similarly, he knew every piece of classical music. He knew all genres, and his creative ability and his technical ability was second to none. Unmatched. Unmatched, right? No question. Oscar was like one of my dad's favorite piano players. He also loved Bill Evans, but... Oh, yeah. Bill Evans, yeah. One of my favorite um, songs I've been listening to a lot lately and I've shared with my producer is uh, Waltz for Debbie, Bill Evans and Cannonball Adderley. That's that's a song that I, in the 90s, I, you know, heard on the radio and like I pressed, you know, record on my tape deck and play over and over again because it's just so good and rich. And Bill Evans' solo on that is amazing. Cannonball Adderley is amazing on that. Yeah, Bill Evans, um, Bill Evans is another one. While the premise of this podcast is me and another person basically geeking out over some of our favorite songs, I'm going to spare you just how far down the rabbit hole Bob and I go here at the end of our chat as we're getting a little long. But I'll leave you with this instead. Waltz for Debbie, composed by the person you hear playing the piano, Bill Evans. This version was released on Cannonball Adderley's album from 1962 entitled, Know What I Mean? For those unfamiliar with Cannonball, he was an American jazz alto saxophone player active in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And according to Wikipedia, he appeared and acted in an episode of the TV show Kung Fu in 1975, starring alongside Jose Feliciano, 
the singer-songwriter known for Feliz Navidad and Light My Fire. I have to find this episode. My conversation with Bob ended pretty quickly as he had another meeting to get to, but he extended an invitation to meet up, have dinner, and even jam the next time I'm in New Orleans. With that invitation pending and listening to Cannonball play here, I suddenly realize I need to practice. A huge thank you to my guest today, Bob Brockman. You can check out his latest project, Nifty Tunes, online at nftytunes.xyz. That's nftytunes.xyz. I'm Angel, and this is Before the Fade. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the next one.